Welcome to the Zeke Sky Podcast. episode we talked about human motivations and we pointed out that there are observable behaviors of a person and it yields specific information about their unique hierarchy of needs and wants right this idea that people have needs that are on the foundational level and that human self-actualization is a matter of getting closer and closer to the peak of Abraham Maslow's pyramid that hierarchy of needs And it's actually maybe more reducible than that, right? We can say that the fundamentals of psychology and biology come down to this hierarchy of needs of individuals, whether they're human or not, right? It's not just about humans. And if biology and psychology describe a narrative of needs within individuals, well, then maybe you could call history the narrative of hierarchical struggle between individuals. And that's uniquely human. And so often it's this conflict that decides the course of this struggle, almost by definition, but not always, really, you know? We we will see in this story, specifically, that military power, for example, can't always achieve the terra firma goals that we all think about as creating history. And if it's not just military prowess, well, what else powers these outcomes? Is it leadership? Is it superior manpower? Technological sophistication? Doctrine? Well, we can meaningfully answer all of this. When Cortez, for example, destroys the Aztec Empire, he does it with a tiny fraction of soldiers, like a a very small fraction of the amount of soldiers that the Aztecs living in South America could raise. He has a few hundred guys, and the Aztecs have maybe 100,000 warriors they can raise. This guy has steel swords, though, and artillery metal breastplates, and he's fighting in people that just don't have the technological sophistication at all. And he destroys an empire of, of millions in a year or two. The German Wehrmacht is maybe another example. From 1943 to 1945, the Second World War Army of the Germans was constantly outnumbered, had a high command that was making awful decisions at every level, and a quite literally drugged-up psychotic leader, but it had superior guns and armor, and this allows them to hold out in situations in which any other military would have thrown out, you know, in the towel completely. And we recognize these examples. So at a certain point... We're looking at these conflicts, and in our minds, the technological sophistication of one side sort of presages the nature of the war. And in our minds, that's exactly the equation that dictates the course of history. It's the point that today we almost have a sense of militaristic determinism, sort of that the events will happen the way they're destined to happen by the asymmetry of weapons technologies. But the truth of the matter is that these things are just tools, and without Hernan Cortez, the Spanish would probably not have used their advantage intelligently enough to so quickly subdue such a populous state like the Aztecs, and without some amount of strategic generalship on the part of the Germans, you would see the same thing in World War II. So when we think about the narrative of struggle between individuals, we tend to think of history as it is manifested through large events like those wars and those individuals who wield military technology. But more broadly, the hierarchy of struggle between individuals is just a description of all the events that transpire in the wider animal kingdom and produce the most up-to-date and modern version of a species, and war is just a big cross-section of that. 
This process is evolution, right? And the benefactors are those who possess the characteristics that allowed their ancestors to reproduce. These benefactors of the cumulative efforts of evolution, that would be you and me, are quite the graduating class, if you think about it. And I don't mean this in a human elitist sense at all. It's clearly significantly more dynamic than some kind of Machiavellian take on military power because even in the ecosystem of natural selection, which is by all standards the most brutal game on earth, a million, million, million small defenseless creatures known as insects stand strong on this planet. Folks, that's a quintillion creatures that could not survive the military action originating from your open hand. What does that say? about these symbiotic hierarchies. It says that adaptation is a superpower. Sort of makes me think that everything I'm about to talk about is kind of null. To me, it says that the mechanisms of reinvention and adaptation to apparent randomness underscore a key feature of life in the universe. It's the power of stability. And stability in this context is to change when it's absolutely necessary and to remain resilient when it simply isn't. And lessons like these from evolution and Darwinism in general should underscore the fact that infinity in the cosmos does not equate to meaningless in life. It's profoundly meaningful to realize that our survival as people and even as spirits requires the loftiness of self-reflection, the industry of self-reinvention, and the zen of idealism. Sometimes it requires a little more than that, though, and that's why the story we get from evolution can get brutal and violent. And let's point something out here. While Charles Darwin is the author of the book that brought the theory of natural selection to a wider audience, it's not completely his idea, right? Some people will mention that about 50 years before Darwin's book came out, a guy called Jean-Baptiste Lamarck proposed a similar theory. And if you dig in, actually, there's a number of authors who are grasping the concept and just not distilling it perfectly. But most interesting to our story is this. Almost two millennia before Darwin wrote his book. Hannibal Barca is giving his soldiers a lesson in the survival of the fittest in a famous incident at the foot of the Alpine Mountains. See, Hannibal is taking his army on a date with destiny, and they've already gone through a lot. And he's got to get them motivated for what's going to happen next, and he has an interesting way of doing it. Lots of generals do this by fiery speeches, right? There's, there's a ton of ways you can do it. There's a lot of famous speeches in history. It's another one of these hallmarks of great generals and leaders, and it's part of the reason that charismatic and articulate people can animate the masses into doing things that normally they would have never done. But Hannibal doesn't want to give a speech in the situation I'm about to tell you about. He's going to teach his soldiers that theory of evolution and give them the opportunity to adapt and survive what is going to be one of the most famous and bold military incursions into enemy lands ever recorded in history. Here's a quote from Polybius. Remember that historian we were talking about, talking about what happens at the base of the Alpine Mountains Quote, at this juncture, with Hannibal and Scipio in close proximity to each other, the two commanders chose to address their men in terms suitable to the occasion. Hannibal came up with a novel method of encouragement. He assembled his troops and brought forward some young men from among the prisoners he had taken during the ambuscades in the Alpine Badlands. They had been treated badly, on his orders, in preparation for what he had in store for them. They wore heavy fetters, they were emaciated from hunger, their bodies were disfigured by blows. He had these men sit in full view of the army, and he displayed before them full sets of Gallic armor, of the kind that their kings wore for single combat, and followed that by having horses brought up and valuable cloaks carried in. Then he asked the young men if any two of them would be willing to fight, with the prizes before them the reward for the winner, and for the loser, death and release from his current torment. 
So Hannibal brings out these Celtic prisoners in front of his army. That's what he's doing here. I always imagine him sort of sitting stoically in front of them with some kind of harsh summary execution ideal in mind. And he gets a bunch of them in front of his armies, and he puts a giant store of treasures in front of them, like horses, ornate stores, you know, the loot, basically. And it's now time for the first ever Hannibalic gladiatorial games. He tells both his soldiers, both sides, that these Celts are going to have an opportunity to win their freedom by combat. And although this kind of thing was common in the ancient world, you know, this is sort of like letting God weigh in on whether each should survive. He's giving a lesson to his soldiers. Because Polybius tells us that he explains that these Celts, whose names are drawn from straws or something, well, they're going to get a chance to fight one of their fellow Celts to death for the opportunity to walk away with a great sword and a great horse, and off you go. And he says that the winner will get the treasures in front of them and that the loser will be freed from this life. And of course, many of these Celts want an opportunity to do that. Remember, this is probably a standard that these Celts would probably have understood. So they all scream forth for the opportunity, and the ones who don't get chosen are filled with great sorrow. He's pointing out a certain set of facts to his men here. This is an exercise in metaphors. Here they are at the precipice of a great conquest with many unanswered questions, with all of the fruits and all of the potential suffering ahead of them, and he's demonstrating to them He's demonstrating to them what the right attitude is. You're far from home. You're emaciated. You're hungry. All you have is the potential opportunity to move forward and conquer or die. Polybius says he orders them to banish from their mind the possibility of surviving defeat. There's no going home. It works. His army is hungry, cold, barely recovering from what actually just preceded this event. How did it come to this, though? Well, it came to this because this army had just crossed the peaks of the Alpine Mountains. It's an unbelievable event, and I want to take a look at it. Let's start first with the ecosystem of myths that have been built around this. Because for a long time, many historians wrote on Hannibal's voyage across the Alps, as if gods had physically interfered with this. They'll say Hannibal had no plan and sort of lucked out, and when one of the gods showed up, said basically, hey, go this way, you'll be fine. But the opposite is true, and Polybius actually talks about it. And before this happens, Hannibal acquires all kinds of relevant information about crossing this pass of the Alps. He figures out stuff about the people living there, what sources of food there might be there, what route might be practical. This was not an improvisation by any means, and Hannibal may very well have thought about this for a long time. Like, maybe even his father Hamilcar envisioned this as a way of ending up in Italy. Polybius himself even says that he talked to some of the people that informed for Hannibal and that he himself has been to the place, Polybius had been to the place, where the army marched through. There's big problems here. Let's start with the first ones that maybe where our mind doesn't go first. We think about the cold of the Alps, and of course it was cold and snowy. But remember that Hannibal has been intimidating local peoples with cavalry and elephants for a long time by the time all of this starts to transpire. You can't really effectively deploy these elephants and cavalry on mountainous hillsides, and this immediately turns his advantage into a vulnerability, because you still have to feed those cavalry and your pack animals, and they're not giving you the upside of effectively responding at the tactical level, at least to any kind of conflict you encounter, which you would have encountered on flat land. And then there's another problem, and that's that some of these tribes aren't quite ready to throw in their lot with Hannibal yet, before he's crossed the Alps. And that's actually an important point because we have to remember that these Celts are known to be sort of impetuous and maybe enjoying frequent changes of rule. And that's a sort of double-edged sword. 
yes, they probably have all sorts of anti-Roman sentiment by now and see Hannibal as a potential aggressor against Rome, but there's also an unfamiliar army in their territory, and sometimes it's easier to fight the snake in your garden than it is to fight the bear in your neighbor's yard. The Romans presented a passing threat to these people, and Hannibal presented potentially more of a present one. One of these people um, are the Allobroges, and they're a Celtic tribe, and when Hannibal gets to the mountain passes at the Alps, these Allobroges are waiting. They're guarding strategic positions during the day, and they're all over these large places where it would be an ideal place to bring an army through. They've kind of figured it out. And they're retiring many of the knights to their local towns, though, because they need to go to sleep, and it sort of sounds like there's a shifting of the guard. So the first task becomes getting these tactically relevant locations emptied of these Allobroges. And Hannibal has just the trick. He brings his army into visual distances of these Allobroges, which sort of announces, hey, we're here. And then he sets up big campfires at night to sort of telegraph that the army is sleeping. And then he sends out some elite infantry out to go take over some of these spots that these Allobroges occupy during the day. Hannibal starts bringing his army and baggage train through these now seemingly more secure locations, and these Allobroges sort of do a double take, kind of at a disadvantage, and losing the high ground and the element of surprise, but the temptation gets too great, and they attack Hannibal and his army while they're making their way up some very narrow passes, and it turns out that that's a winning strategy for the Allobroges. They attack at several points on this giant moving column, and it's a disaster, even before Hannibal is really even able to get somewhat into the higher regions of the Alps. These animals start falling over the side of icy passes, and it's probably here where a lot of the elephants die. They probably don't die by being killed by kinetic puncture wounds. They slip and fall, and the whole thing is just an absolute mess to start. Hannibal's off to a bad start, but adversity is where we know he shines. He's undeterred, and reading Polybius, you get the sense that he's got to quickly figure something out, and here he uses sheer force. He takes a bunch of his elite guys from the higher ground and counterattacks these Celts, and somehow, despite the disorder of his ranks, he manages to push these Allobroges back to their town. He's taken big casualties there, and we don't know exactly how many, but Polybius uses the phrase heavy losses, and that is just awful, considering he hasn't even really gotten anywhere near the top of the Alps yet. He leads this elite infantry down some paths, chasing this army of Allobroges away, and he eventually ends up in the town that served as their base for this attack, and encounters a little resistance, taking it, and here he will get some relief. And it's at this sort of, you could maybe think about it as being maybe halfway through the Alps, or to the peak of the Alps at least. He gets some grain, sounds like he gets enough food for a few days, some new pack animals, But importantly, this strikes some fear into some of these other tribes that might have wanted to get more involved in harassing the stranger in the wintry strongholds of the Alps. It sounds to me that none of Hannibal's tactical brilliance was on display here. This sounds like just brute force and good, solid, on-the-ground leadership that allows him to address the situation and turn it into an advantage. They stay in this place for a couple days, rest up, recuperate, and on the third day, they start continuing the ascent to the top of the Alps. And out of the deep, dark, wintry woods comes a greeting committee with some nice gifts, some garlands, telling Hannibal that they wouldn't dare ambush him and how great he is, and please go get these Romans and all that. Hannibal's skeptical, though, and wouldn't you be too, and he uses his better judgment. He questions these messengers and determines that they're up to no good. They offer him some hostages, though, which is more of a commitment, and Hannibal takes some time to think about things before keeping up through the land of these mysterious people. 
Ultimately, he decided to accept the gifts and hostages while basically presuming these people were going to attack him anyways and sort of responds to feign friendship in kind. Hannibal takes them up as guides and sort of plays along with them. This must have been a pretty strange game to play, but I doubt he had a choice. They take him up some paths, but basically the whole time Hannibal basically knows something is coming. And then a day or two later, some of the people Polybius calls barbarians start attacking the rear of the the Carthaginian army, that's Hannibal's army, when they pass into a sacred gorge or something where they're really not supposed to be. Hannibal, being smart though, had anticipated this exact thing, and to play into the hands of these so-called barbarians, he had sneakily placed his heavy infantry in the back and his valuable baggage train in the front. And it sounds like the heavy Carthaginian infantry stands up pretty well to this rear guard attack. But it's nasty, and he still loses a lot of guys. And one of the things that happens here is that since the Celts have the high ground, they're launching rolling projectiles and arrows down on the front of the army, and they narrow Hannibal and his men into like a gorge on the side of a cliff. And he's forced to spend the night in a place that's really awkward for him and his army, really just not a good place for him to be. He does this, and that enemy kind of retreats, and he miraculously finds his baggage and cavalry train, and they start to continue making their way up to the slopes behind him once again, evading an icy death. And now Hannibal is getting to the top of the Alps. His army is disheveled, and they haven't had much food. And like we pointed out, Hannibal endures the worst with his men. fear and the cold must have compounded to make a situation ripe with deserters. But somehow, someway, a bunch of the cavalry that he had lost along the way in the frazzled ascent find their way to the top of these Alps. And Livy has a quote here. The dreadful vision was now before their eyes. The towering peaks, the snow-clad pinnacles soaring to the sky, the rude huts clinging to the rocks, the people with ragged hair, stiff with frost. This must have been a surreal moment. They've completed this unbelievable task, and surely they knew that this was just the beginning. And Hannibal did not miss out on the opportunity to point this out to his men. He leads his men out to this broad cliff at around 8,500 feet, where there are no clouds to obscure the view. And from here, they would have seen an unbelievable sight, mainland Italy, and it must have looked like a cornucopia in the palm of their hands. Think about the kind of metaphorical significance of a mountain, too. Mountains represent the treacherous journey one must endure for renewed and enhanced perspective over a dynamic landscape. I once heard someone say something like, beware of unearned wisdom. The view from the top of the mountains for this army is truly earned perspective. Hannibal spends a few days at the top of these Alps. More of his men start showing up with the baggage train, which must have been a relief, But already the nature of the situation must have seemed clear as Hannibal had lost a solid half of the men he ascended with. He started with maybe 50,000 guys, and Polybius says that he's got 8,000 Spanish infantry, 6,000 cavalry, and 12,000 African soldiers when he gets out. And although numbers can be misleading, one thing is clear. This force is woefully inadequate to challenge Rome, and Hannibal must have known that. Livy puts this line in Hannibal's mouth at the base of the Alps. North and south, the sea hems you in. You have not a single ship even to escape with your lives. Facing you is the Po. Behind you is the alpine barrier, which even in the flower and freshness of your strength you almost failed to cross. You must conquer or die. 
And this sounds cold and even a bit admonishing, but really this is just a practical take on the situation at this point. This army is on a one-way trip, and he's making sure they know that and don't entertain any fantasies of capture or retreat. This right here is when that incident I told you about in the beginning of this podcast happens when Hannibal brings those Celts out. And they needed it because now it's time to meet the Romans proper. He'll immediately get into a cavalry skirmish with the Roman consul Publius Scipio, and he'll win this skirmish with some big foreshadowing of some of the tactical stratagems of what's to come here on the cavalry end. And that happens at a place called Ticinus. Scipio makes his way to Placentia. And Hannibal catches up two days later. And here, after seeing Hannibal win the cavalry skirmish, a bunch of these Celts start showing up in Hannibal's camp with decapitated heads of Romans to sort of show the flag. And so begins a number of Gallic defections. Gallic is the Celts. who are now seduced by this young man's boldness and aggressive administrative policies. Hannibal starts using this as propaganda. The defections of the Gauls to Hannibal continue. It's December, it's cold, and both armies set up camp with Scipio moving south a bit when he sees Hannibal arriving across a place called the Trebia River after he gets out of the Alps. He'll set up a fortified camp in a strong position in the hills there, and he'll wait for reinforcements and think about things. These enforcements arrive at the command of the Second Council. This is a Roman called Sempronius Longus. Longus shows up with an army of green troops who are undertrained, and Scipio insists that that's an issue that should make them rule out a set-piece battle with Hannibal. But this Longus guy disagrees, and without going too much into it, this Longus guy is pretty bad news for Rome right here. And the setup for this contrasts really with the character of Hannibal. Um, Longus and Hannibal couldn't have been more different. Hannibal is a soldier's soldier and a guy who's out there seeking national gain, not personal gain, and Longus is the opposite, and so are a lot of these Roman consuls. The Romans send him to link up with Scipio, that's Longus. Remember, there's two consuls that they're going to use to fight Hannibal, and they send him with about 14,000 total allied infantry and 1,600 horse. He's very eager to show that he's the tough consul, with Scipio, who was wounded in his first skirmish with Hannibal, actually, and already has had a taste of what this is like. And he's basically leaping up like a frog at the opportunity to seize the glory against Hannibal. And Hannibal seems to know this. Now Scipio, the other Roman consul, wanted to wait things out. His general idea is that putting off the battle would cause the Gauls, those are you know Hannibal's new allies, to become restless and defect from Hannibal, minimizing his allied infantry advantage. And this was probably sound reasoning, given the impetuosity of the Celts, His general idea is that putting off the battle would cause the Gauls, that's Celts, to become restless and defect from Hannibal, minimizing his allied infantry advantage. And this was probably sound reasoning, given the known impetuosity of these Gauls. They're the type of people who sort of delight in the change of rule. And from Hannibal's perspective, the ideal strategy here is to fight as many set-piece battles as he can. Bring big armies out into the open where you can beat them with the thing that you're good at and move on as quickly as possible. And Hannibal is quickly gaining intelligence and military momentum for that battle while the two consuls are arguing. Consuls. Longus wins the argument and is about to make a fatal mistake. He sets up a camp north of the first camp made by Scipio and starts to think about getting Hannibal into a pitched battle. He doesn't get much time to think about it, though. At dawn, Hannibal has the Numidians, that's that cavalry unit that I was telling you about, cross the Trebia River. And in the wee hours of morning, the Romans have projectiles raining down on them in their camp. These Romans are just waking up, 
They haven't eaten. They're just wiping the dust from their eyes. And at this, Longus impetuously sends out all 4,000 of his cavalry, out along with 6,000 of a light infantry type called Velites, to confront and chase down the Numidians. The Numidians start to run north as Longus himself marches out to meet the enemy. Heavy infantry follows with a solid column, perhaps two miles long, of Roman infantry, but the Numidians continue fleeing across the river, drawing Longus and his entire force out of the camp and toward the Trebia River. They get in the Trebia River, in the cold, without eating. To the west, Hannibal gets his staff up and lets them know the plan. He feeds his men, offers words of encouragement, and gets them into fight mode. Back on the east side, the Numidians are still fleeing and find themselves backed into the banks of the Trebia River. They start crossing the river, pursued, like I said, by the full strength of Longus's army. Longus's army crosses the water, potentially chest deep by the time they're getting through it, in freezing cold temperatures. You can smell the disaster at this point. Hannibal sends out about 8,000 infantry to support the Numidians who are now on their side of the river, effectively bringing them back and utilizing a protective screen for his own deployment. He then brings the rest of his army out and stations them for a pitched battle. Longus takes hours to get over the river with his army. His men end up hungry, cold, and already exhausted. He gets his velites in the front, gets the veterans and legionaries in the center, and has some allied cavalry, some Celts, on the sides. Hannibal deploys in a long line with his Gallic allies on the right and in the middle, and Spanish and Libyan infantry on the sides. Elephants flank that infantry, and the Numidian cavalry around the whole thing rounds out the far left and the far right. In the early afternoon, Longus sends out his army. Hannibal waits on his side. And skirmishes emerge in the front of the armies, with small projectiles traded between each side. The Carthaginians seem to dish out casualties on the Romans here, specifically with a type called the Balearic Slingers, which were more effective than Roman javelins, apparently. The heavy Roman line of legionary infantry initially pushes the Gallic center of Hannibal's line back, actually inflicting heavy casualties. On the sides, Hannibal orders his cavalry forward. The Roman horses start getting frightened by the elephants, but a special group of infantry trained to deal with elephants manage to mix with the cavalry and kill a number of these elephants. The sides of the Roman army are being pushed back, but the center of the Carthaginian army is giving way to the legionary infantry. The Romans are making progress, perhaps causing disorder and some panic in Hannibal's army. But from the rear of the Roman army, near the western bank of the Trebia, one of Hannibal's generals is waiting. He's sitting there with 2,000 of the best of his cavalry and infantry, and just when the Numidians start chasing down the Roman cavalry on the side, that force mobilizes and hits the Romans in the rear. Hard-pressed by elephants, the wings of the Romans take heavy casualties. But in the center, the fight is still hot. The Carthaginian center will fall apart as the Roman heavy infantry manages to cut through. And that legion just keeps going and going and going until somehow, someway, they end up totally off the battlefield, probably in a long retreat. They run back to Placentia, and Rome has just lost their first battle to Hannibal. 
The Battle of the Trebia cost the Romans as much as 30,000 guys, dead or wounded. Hannibal, on the other hand, loses about 3,000. It's a wipeout victory. He loses most of his elephants. He had already lost a lot of them in the Alps, but that's about the only downside for Hannibal here. The bottom line is that in a month or two, Hannibal outperformed two Roman consuls using superior coordination and masterful command over his troops. News of the defeat reaches Rome and causes panic at Rome. And as that word spreads, more of the Gauls flock to Hannibal, impressed with his ability in pitched battles. A surge of attacks and rebellions begin in perennially allied towns, with Gauls attacking Romans, wishing to express their new interest in this young, genius general. They'll lose control over basically all of Cisalpine Gaul, the Romans will, and now Hannibal has 40,000 infantry and 10,000 cavalry under his command. That's about what he entered the Alpine Passes with. It's an incredible victory and turn of fate. Hannibal continues marching south. The mood in Rome starts to decay a little. Not a lot, but a little bit. We're told by Livy that omens and prophets are read that invoke Mars, the Roman god of war. Several soldiers' javelins reportedly burst into flames. Some had seen waters of, you know, spring waters filled with blood or double moons. All this stuff gets to the Roman people, and their basic interpretation is that they were facing some sort of chaotic and unusual circumstance, but not doom. And they were. An enemy army led by a 30-year-old just wiped, you know, two experienced consular armies off the map, seemingly losing only about 10% of his already weakened force. Political discomfort follows this at Rome and is met with the election of two new consuls, Servilius Geminus and Gaius Flaminius. Now, this Flaminius man was a guy of a lot of controversy even before the war. He was what the Romans called a novus homo, or a new man. He was a guy that didn't have noble ancestry and had worked his way up through elected office anyways. He was a populist sort, gaining the support of the plebeians. A few years before this, he passed a popular land bill that gave land to the poor, winning some popularity. He also constructed a famous road called the Via Flaminia. Truthfully, this Flaminius had exercised some wise fiscal and administrative policy, but that didn't qualify him for warfare, and he did not seem to understand that. Polybius says this about Flaminius, quote, He learned that Flaminius was a thorough mob quarter and a demagogue with no talent for the practical conduct of war and exceedingly confident. Hannibal calculated that if he passed by the Roman army and advanced in the country in his front, the consul, Flaminius, would fall anywhere. The plan of the Romans is to start using terrain to their advantage. Hannibal is in the north, past the Apennine Mountains, and Servilius is to the south, at the edge of the mountains, and Flaminius is in the southwest, also beyond the mountains. They're going to try and trap Hannibal or force him to fight in a bad location. The Romans know that there are only two roads that they can use to pass this mountain range, you know, um, so Hannibal is narrowed down. Both armies move in position to block those routes. Flaminius makes for Aradium with 10,000 legionnaires that survived the Battle of the Trevia and a whole other army. Servilius stations at Ariminium. They've got a lot of horsemen this time around. Hannibal has to stay in place for a little while up north in the Po Valley where he's eating up resources and the more he does, the more fickle the allied Gauls get. He knows the Romans won't fight him in the north, so he gets on the move. He has to go after the Romans or he's going to lose these Gauls. They're just not going to be able to keep the interest in this. Hannibal decides to take, again, an unexpected path. He marches his army first across the Apennine Mountains, crossing through and then making it to the Arno Marshes. The march is very difficult. 
He has his best troops in front with the Gauls in the back and with some cavalry in the back too. The Arno is a swampland, offering no dry areas for resting. They march for four grueling days with many sleeping on dead corpses and horses. There's almost certainly losses here just doing the crossing. Many will die of infections and Hannibal himself will get an infection that will eventually take his eye. But after four miserable days, they emerge from the Arno marshes. Hannibal only has one elephant left after the march, and so that elephant is famous. I found quite uh, I found a quote that said Hannibal was, quote, the one-eyed general riding a huge Getulian bust, and a Getulian bust is an elephant. That's colorful. This gets looked over in history, but this right here is incredible. Hannibal brings a 50,000-man army across the Apennines and through the Arno marshes in just four days, all without being detected. Go Google a picture of this stuff. It's incredible. Um, he's well-positioned for the next phase of his campaign. He gets this army to Florentia, to the south of the Apennines, and starts sending scouts out, learning of Flaminius's position at Aredia. His scouts see Flaminius. He gains some intel, figuring out who this Flaminius guy is and how he can be exploited, which is, again, something that Hannibal is just exquisite at. He starts plundering the rich Etrurian countryside, which is what Flaminius is essentially there to protect, right? And he does this in plain view of Flaminius. One of the wealthiest areas in Italy is literally burning while Flaminius can only observe. But Flaminius manages to contain himself and sends word to Servilius, that's the other Roman consul, to get down here and help. But Hannibal can't directly attack the fortification at Aredium. It's fortified and he has limited supplies, he just can't handle it right now. He keeps charging past Aredium, which is strange because now he really has two armies behind him. But he's thinking about doing the unpredictable thing here that could provoke Flaminius into coming out for an open battle. And again, this is where Hannibal shines. And sure enough, a few days after marching south of Aredium, Hannibal's scouts tell him that Flaminius isn't waiting around, and he's coming out to fight. And on the morning of June 24th, 217 BC, Flaminius makes it to Lake Trasimene. He's got a camp on the north side of the lake, and towards the east side of the lake, Hannibal starts having his troops burn stuff and send up smoke. It's sort of like saying, come get me. So Flaminius starts making his way on the sides of this lake, I might add, towards the east side of the lake. He's got his veteran legions in the front, some who are almost certainly veterans of the Battle of the Trebia, who want this fight. And a mist starts cloaking the lake and the valley. All is quiet. No one's around, and visibility is low. And all of a sudden, these legions stumble into Hannibal's cavalry, who are blocking the road. Fighting instantly breaks out. Despite the surprises, the Roman vanguard forms up and gets in a position where they can fight. And the army is still making their way around and likely can't see that the army ahead just made accidental contact with the enemy. Right? Because it's such a big army, there's a large column. They can probably hear it, though, and they know what's coming. And the Romans don't quite know it yet, but they've stumbled directly into an ambush. In a brilliant move, Hannibal managed to position a large contingent in the hills above the lake at night, the night before this battle. It's an unbelievable maneuver. He doesn't march them up the hills directly next to the water. He marches them around the east and into the hills at night. Tens of thousands of troops without being detected by the Roman army that is a mile away. 
It's another unbelievable feat, and really the battle was won right there. This contingent swoops down on the Romans and presses them against the lake. Flaminius is caught completely by surprise, formations break up, and soldiers are left to fight for themselves. In an hour, the Romans have been split in two. Numidians and Gauls force the Romans into the water. Many Romans try to swim away in their armor, drowning. The Celts find Flaminius, who was extremely unpopular with the Gauls, who he had taken land from. The guard tries to protect him, but a single Gaul kills him, his body torn to pieces by Gallic soldiers. Hannibal can't even give the consul a proper burial. Here we have another bad day for Rome. They suffer 15,000 dead and 15,000 captured. Carthage loses maybe 2,000 guys, mostly Gauls. It's another disastrous outcome for the Romans. A lot of military equipment is taken, including shields and helmets. A lot of this is down to the impetuosity of Flaminius. And now Hannibal is close to Rome. He's like 200 miles away from Rome, and no army stands in his way. He's a two-week march from there, and he doesn't march on Rome. This is one of the great puzzles of history. But let's take a look at this, and let's think about the tactics, right? Those are the battlefield methods, your ambushes, your fake attacks, your flanking maneuvers, the stuff that makes a difference between two set armies on a battlefield. But there are also strategic objectives. These are the broad, overarching ideas about monetary policy, treaties, communication, supply lines, all that stuff. Carthage's strategic objectives here were to win back places like Sardinia and Corsica that had been lost in the First Punic War. These were important locus points for them to regain seafaring dominance. Rome understood these objectives and stationed their legions in reflection of the fact that they had to protect those regions and fight Hannibal. And truthfully, they've now totally failed in keeping him from their vulnerable land. What's worse is that the Carthaginians have a fleet of 70 ships just waiting to the west of Rome, blocking supply lines and perhaps able to support a land-sea operation. It made every bit of sense, almost certainly for Hannibal, to hit Rome. And it's easy to get caught up in the ceremonial nature of the city and the moral defeat that it would have dealt the Romans had the city been taken, but it would have been worse than that. Taking the city would have forced the Roman legions stationed all over the place to have to come to defend Rome, which would have spelled disaster for the occupied territories, which were almost certainly being stared down by Gauls and Carthage itself. It would have exposed basically everywhere the Carthaginians went. Hannibal will eventually admit this later down the road. Historians will give a reason why Rome wasn't under siege at this point, and it just doesn't seem to add up. The first is the number of troops that Hannibal had, and this falls right on its face, frankly. You've got a million people in Rome, a large stone barrier, five or so main gates, 10-meter defensive trenches. It's plenty of defense, but it would not have been insurmountable. And with 50,000 guys, a civilian population of a half a million is just not that big a deal. Hannibal would have known that this was doable, so it's strange. One possibility is that Hannibal's view of war was Hellenized. He may have thought that the total destruction of the enemy was unnecessary. And in this way, he miscalculated the will of the Romans, who are basically preparing to fight until the last death. Hannibal had an obvious advantage on the field. But still, this is where historically maybe the mood starts to really become apocalyptic in Rome either way. And it's worth pausing to understand just what might have been the perception here, because the Roman Senate can't really hide what's happened here now. One of the senators at Rome famously tells a crowd of anxious Romans that they've been defeated in a great battle. But it's worse than that, really. They've lost two or three now. Tens of thousands of soldiers had lots of lands burned. And this is all happening at the hands of a guy who would barely be old enough to vote in Greece. 
Hannibal's about 27 or 28 at this point. It's a staggering scenario. So they do something extreme. They elect a dictator called Fabius Maximus. And this is extreme because the Romans point out constantly their disdain for dictatorship. But they had a sort of emergency attitude about this, where they thought that the political kinetics of the situation demanded a unified strategy. Fabius puts together the largest army in Roman history, 90,000 guys, and Hannibal is preparing for it. He goes up to the Adriatic Sea on the other coast, refreshes himself, and starts making his way back down. He sends some ships to Carthage, explaining his successes, and the government there is ready to help him and send reinforces, they say. Fabius Maximus starts making his way across the Apennines as he starts to sort of chase down Hannibal. He's an experienced general. He's got some new ideas about what to do with Hannibal. He's advancing cautiously, scouting ahead, being careful of traps. They end up in southern Italy, camping about 10 kilometers apart. Hannibal offers battle to Fabius, and Fabius doesn't respond at all. Like, Fabius stays in his camp, says nope. Hannibal provokes Fabius' army by sort of just marching right past him, but Fabius just kind of starts following Hannibal and doesn't want to have an open battle. The dirty secret is that Fabius doesn't even want to fight Hannibal in an open battle at all. He's going to let Hannibal burn stuff and hurt people, but won't fight him. As you can imagine, it wasn't exactly a popular policy, and it's known as a Fabian strategy. Fabius shadows and shadows and shadows Hannibal all the way across the mountains. He wants to deprive Hannibal of food by harassing his foraging parties, but he still doesn't risk the direct but he still doesn't risk the direct confrontation. Fabius has everyone take their wild stock away and out of towns gets everyone out of harm's way. And this is what's again known as a Fabian strategy. You evacuate these towns, you burn the things that you can. It's not appeasement, it's just taking account of the simple fact that when Hannibal fields an army right now against Romans, he basically wins. And the wins aren't just on the battlefield. Every time this happens, the Celts want to join up, and people in Italy are now fans of Hannibal. Even a lot of the Roman soldiers who faced him were sort of blown away. This was the most difficult threat Rome really ever faced, and it's happening at the hands of a young man. It's just unprecedented, and although Fabian's strategy is unpopular, it's largely working. Hannibal is struggling to feed his army and to maintain his equipment. Fabius continues, shadowing Hannibal past Beneventum. Fabius falls about two days behind Hannibal here, and Hannibal shows up in a wealthy area called Asia Falernus. Hannibal starts unleashing his troops, stripping the region of supplies, cattle, basically everything. Fabius's political power is starting to crumble as the Italians watch their homes burn. The other council at the time urges Fabian to attack Hannibal, but Fabius refuses. The wealthiest area in Italy is now burning, and the dictator is refusing to do anything about it. It's a massive political risk to take, but in retrospect, it's the right idea, and Hannibal seems to know that. He can't win without drawing Fabius out, so he's essentially failed despite wreaking havoc on the countryside and dealing Fabius considerable political stress. He can't stay in the valley either, though, and it's not going to sustain him, and he's trapped there by Fabius, who has fortified all the regions where an easy way out was possible. They're significant enough that Hannibal can't risk attacking the fortifications. And now Hannibal is in a position where his supplies are dwindling. He can't attack anyone with cavalry. And as the situation deteriorates for him, he realizes he has to move quickly. About a month later, he has his troops eat a big dinner and go to bed and get a good night's sleep. And in the middle of the night, some torches appear in the sky to the garrison of Romans stationed just north of Hannibal. It's a massive column. This garrison thinks the army is marching out, and they send out all their guys to meet Hannibal in the wee hours of morning. 
but the Romans reach this mass and are shocked to find its pack animals with torches attached to them. It's an ambush. From the east of their position jump out 2,000 Iberian javelin men. The fighting rages on for a while as Hannibal moves on with the rest of the army through a narrow passage that was left unguarded by the abandoned Roman garrison. Fabius sees this unfold from his garrison and still decides not to go out. It's a classic evasive maneuver, and it's in basically every military manual you'll find. Hannibal is a genius again. This is maybe one of the early examples of something like this, and Fabius is embarrassed again. Hannibal makes his way back to the Apennines, Fabius following him. In the summer of 217 BC, this is all happening. And now Hannibal's marching towards Rome. The fear must have been at some kind of peak at this point. But Hannibal isn't wanting to march on Rome, and for some reason, Hannibal hasn't established as many strategic alliances in Italy as he would have liked. But Fabius is now in the death throes of his popularity. This is a disastrous policy, even though it's working. Hannibal also hit him with a personal, treacherous touch, too. Hannibal, when he's burning these Italian countrysides, leaves Fabius's house untouched, and this caused many in Rome to think maybe Fabius had cut some kind of a deal, which of course he hadn't, but he continues with the Fabian scorched earth policy, and it manages to hamper the movement of Hannibal enough to cause discomfort. Hannibal winters at a place called Geronium. He turns the place into a sort of fortified granary and sends scouts out to forage. He's got enough provisions to last till the spring, and he's in a good defensive position. He's set up there. Across the valley, Romans arrive a few days later, but Fabius has to go back to Rome and explain the situation. And he leaves a guy called Minutius in camp who doesn't want to follow the Fabian strategy. He starts sending cavalry out to hunt out the foragers, but Hannibal sends out 2,000 Libyans to deflect these attempts and station his army closer to it. Minutius wants a fight here. He sends out cavalry and infantry to terrorize the regions around the camp, but Hannibal keeps sending out these foraging parties, either out of desperation or trying to get Minutius to strike more. My mind makes me think it's probably the latter. Minutius strikes more, and there's a massive skirmish where many Carthaginians are actually killed, and Hannibal's with them and has to march all of them back to the main camp. Minutius sends a report of this very minor success. It probably wasn't a lot of Carthaginians killed, but he tells the Romans. And the Romans finally think they've found the solution and make Minutius a co-dictator, whatever that means. Fabius still is urging caution. Remember, Fabius is the guy who had the strategy of burn everything and run away from the army, but Minutius isn't hearing of it. He takes four of his legions and establishes his own camp. And one morning, Hannibal is on top of the ridge near Geronium where he can see inside the camp. The Romans come out of the camp, and Minutius is ready to fight, and so is Hannibal. Minutius charges up a hill with cavalry at Hannibal. You can already smell disaster here. But the Spanish Numidians commanded by Hannibal pour over that ridge, and the Romans are pushed right back down. With the cavalry out fighting, there's no way for Minutius to scout for possible ambushes, which is always the big deal against Hannibal. But he keeps pressing legions forward, directly into another Hannibalic trap. The previous night, Hannibal led 5,000 Libyans and 1,000 cavalry, with orders for them to hide in the perimeter of the ridge this is all happening on. It's another unbelievable feat. And as Minutius' infantry goes on that charge, Hannibal signals those hidden troops to attack from the ravines. Libyan cavalry charges in hard, and Minutius, not grasping the reality here, orders his troops forward, playing perfectly into this ambush. The Romans run. Hannibal doesn't chase. It's not on the scale as some of these other battles, but it's humiliating for Minutius, who turns to Fabius and returns the dictatorship to him. 
Fabius treats Minutius with respect and makes him second in command. The trauma here and the empathy must have made understanding possible between these two men. So let's review here. Hannibal is on his second winter in Italy. He's inflicted losses more severe on Rome than anything they've encountered in the First Punic War in several pitched battles. He's marched across Italy at will and sets the lands ablaze. They tried to starve him, isolate him, and in the end, he ended up humiliating them. At the end of 217, the armies stay away from each other. And then Rome sends out the largest army in Roman history under Lucius Paulus and Gaius Varro. They conduct drills, take their oaths, and outline a grim determination to destroy the Carthaginian incursion force. There's really four consuls at this point. There's also Servilius's legion and Regulus's legion. They have 20,000 Roman infantry, about 100... They have 20,000 Roman infantry, about 12,000 Roman cavalry... 20,000 allied infantry, and 4,000 allied infantry to be handled by Paulus and Varro. They also have 15,000 Roman infantry, 15,000 allied infantry, and 10,000 auxiliary, and 12,000 cavalry headed with Geminus and Regulus. It's like 87,000 guys in all of the legions combined, plus a little extra cavalry that was sent along. All in all, it's got to be close to 100,000 and a large number of the equestrian class are there. It's the most serious effort made yet. It's a huge force, and it reflects both desperation and aggression. These are apocalyptic army numbers. Roma Eterna was being threatened, and that seemed like a pretty good way to get your name out, you know, to be in this army. So they probably didn't have a a whole lot of trouble recruiting. Hannibal has 50,000 infantry and 10,000 cavalry, which is a sizable number. He's got to keep this army fed, though, And he set up in Geronium for about six months doing it, with the needs of the army dictating where and how they'll forage and raid. In June of 216, Hannibal leaves Geronium to head south to Apulia, with the army sort of shadowing him. Geminus and Regulus are shadowing him. They're following him. They observe his behaviors and ask the Senate what to do, and they say just wait until Paulus and Varro arrive with the other half of the force. So Hannibal pillages his way through Apulia. It's the third year of Hannibal pillaging through Italy. It's devastating. The Romans need a battle here, and they need a win. They have the resources and the attitude, and think it's time to confront Hannibal again. Paulus and Varro finally arrive. They scout the area, looking for ambush sections. But the Romans have close to 100,000 guys, and they're having supply issues in their own territory. It's a bad time. Meanwhile, Hannibal takes the wealth he's acquired from Apulia, And as wealthy as he's become here, he can't lose a battle here. He can't replace significant losses. He had to suck up whatever resources he can as quickly as he could because he needs to bring his army back to strength. He's got no allies here, no strikes to swing. Rumors start circling that Hannibal has a contingency plan of escape. But right about that time, he captures the town of Cani. And so begins one of the greatest stories of military ingenuity of all time. Cani is a supply depot. It satisfies many of his demands. And Hannibal sits and waits at the top of the hill at Cani. He could keep moving south and continue plundering, but the Romans are close now, and Hannibal can't afford the perception that he's actually running. He needs to get more of these Gauls on his side if he can. And then on August 16th, 216, the signal on Varro's tents let the troops know it's time to fight. Clouds of fine dust are hovering across the soil. He starts taking his troops out, he gets organized, he sees Hannibal also wants to fight, and out Hannibal comes. 
The two armies cross the Aphidius River in two separate locations and make their way to the flat plain outside Cani. The Romans leave a garrison in their camp of 10,000 guys, probably because they weren't sure if this was the real deal. Paulus insists on this, probably a good idea too if things had gone differently as it could have maybe cut off a retreat. Hannibal deploys with light troops at the perimeter of the main body, right there at Cani, as a protective shield. Servilius commands the 55,000 legionaries and allied troops in the center in a more tightly packed formation. Varro remembers that at Trasimene, the Roman heavy infantry held off the Carthaginians for a long time, inflicting significant losses despite an unfavorable position. The tighter formation restricts some amount of tactical flexibility, but made the overall army easier to control. The Roman leadership thought the legions could crush the center this way. Varro chose the spot wisely. He's got a river on one side and mountains on the other, which would face the Carthaginians into a frontal charge. On the other end of the field, Hannibal places 6,000 Spanish skirmishers and 2,000 of the Balearic Slingers as a screening force protecting the army, telling them to create chaos and raise dust. Behind them are close-order infantry, Celts, making up the main line. 3,000 Spanish are in that formation to strengthen the center. He has 8,000 Libyans in the rear, hidden from view. On the Punic right as well, there's 5,000 Numidian horsemen, commanded by Hanno, holding a flank. On the other side, he's got 2,000 Spanish and 5,000 Gallic cavalry, meant to overwhelm the opposition left flank, under the command of Hasdrubal. Around midday, the Roman army moves out. Carthaginian cavalry moves forward, while the light infantry on both sides move ahead eventually to open the fight. Hannibal starts to make his move by forming his front into a crescent shape, with the bulge facing outward. The skirmishing between light troops begins in the center, with javelins and other projectiles hurling into each side. Cavalry on the sides make contact, and initially the confined space of the battlefield negates the Carthaginian cavalry advantage. Hasdrubal tightly controls his men on the sides, briefly terrifying the Romans with a frontal charge. Paulus joins the fighting in the center, and the Numidians on the Carthaginian side start to harass infantry on the Roman side. In the center, the projectile exchange gives way to a direct fight as the Roman legions finally make contact with the Carthaginians. The trumpets sound. The naked Gauls and the Spanish on the Carthaginian side are in their tunics for a long time, but the way the legions start pushing the center... The trumpets finally sound. The naked Gauls and the Spanish in their tunics hold for a time, but the weight of the legion starts pushing the center of the Carthaginian line backwards, and Hannibal starts telling his center to stop fighting the assault in the center and to slowly move back. And right here, one of the greatest military maneuvers in history has begun. Hannibal stayed in position as he assisted his center in slowly moving back. While on the flanks, the Roman cavalry has been completely routed off the field by the Carthaginian cavalry. Hasdrubal is now in a position to come up behind the Romans. He starts preparing for that maneuver. Meanwhile, the Roman centurions and legionaries continue pushing the Carthaginian center, which seemed to be on the way to collapse. The Gauls and Spanish move back, fighting bravely, but eventually moving on to a run. The crowded Roman center surges forward into the gap. Finally, Hasdrubal reforms his cavalry and comes up behind the Roman army. Varro knows that one of the Roman cavalry has been routed, and Varro flees the field. 
The Numidians chase him, and Hasdrubal is now squarely behind the Roman legions, and spelling disaster. The legions are pressing forward against the Carthaginian center, and the Carthaginians are turning into a mob here. Their center can't hold on for very much longer. The Romans in that center, they can taste victory, even though Varro has already fled the field, and they think they're in the clear, but they've been outwitted again. As the Romans continue to push forward, the sides of the Carthaginian army are turned into an oval on the side. The further the Romans push forward, the more surrounded they become, as the Libyans on the side begin to form a circle shape around them. It's as if they've walked into a bag. Paulus and Servilius fight heroically, but are both cut down, as the Carthaginian army has now tricked the Romans into a total surrounding. It's an awful day. The fighting goes on until dark. The Romans are compressed into a small space. By sundown, 50,000 Roman infantry lay dead or dying in the field at Cannae. Hannibal loses 4,000 Gauls, 1,500 Spanish, and maybe a couple Libyans. And that move is called a double envelopment, and it came to be one of the most famous military tactics of all time. The echoes of this defeat struck at the heart of Rome, and the fate of Rome now fluttered in the balance 